We've been looking a lot at the concluding statements of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount is framed up in five categories that basically beg the question, are you siding with Jesus or are you not? Are you with him or not? Are you, are you a Christian or not? There's no middle of the road Christianity. Christianity is, it's, it's, it's a decision that once it's made and the Lord changes your heart, it's a final decision. You're signed and sealed for him forever. But the diagnostic at the end of his sermon is for you to examine yourself to see if you truly are his or not. And it's an important question to ask in view of judgment that's coming. Uh, Do you love Jesus? Are you willing to follow Jesus on the narrow road? Or are you still on the wide road? Are you learning from Jesus? Are you living for Jesus? Where will you be when you stand in judgment? Were you someone who really knew Jesus for real or you were faking yourself out? You don't want to find out then that you were really on the wide road when you needed to be on the narrow one. And then lastly, are you listening to Jesus? Are you going to heed this warning from this text this morning? People who heed the warning are people who hear the warning and their life has changed. People who hear the warning and do not heed the warning and don't really care what he said their life is no different. They might think they're fine and they're really not. Let's listen with that in mind to this text as I read Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Tragedies strike unexpectedly often and on massive scale around the world. A lot happens and we don't account for the fact that it was very, very dramatic around us. You hear of things like tsunamis that, you know, whether it was Haiti or not Haiti, but um, the Philippines or, you know, Thailand or Japan where a tsunami unexpected comes and it, it will literally mop off the face of the earth like the fingers of God pulling people three, five miles in off the coastline into eternity. What we ask ourselves is a question like this. Wow, how tragic was that? Or why did they live there? Why would they put themselves in harm's way? What, what is it like for a mother to have her, her child ripped from her arms? And now what is she going to do? Those are the questions we ask. Or questions like this, we bring it to a God level. Did, did God, was he responsible for that? Was he aware of that? Was, was he holding that tsunami together to do that? What do we do with God in that? Well, the real question we need to ask is not why did it happen or why were they there, but where are they now? That's the question. What, what, what's happening to them now in eternity? Are they with the Lord safe or are they not with the Lord unsafe, suffering in hell? Where did they stand before this happened in view of what happened? I was, uh, I've always been fascinated by 
you know, where I'm from, the East Coast, and hurricanes, hurricanes would come and you could map them out and see them a long way off, different than a tornado striking, touching down suddenly, different than an earthquake like we've experienced here, where there's, you know, dynamic things that are happening suddenly, different than a mass shooting where people are wiped out for whatever reason in schools and churches, things happen all the time and they shock us. Well, a hurricane is something that typically you see as a tropical storm. They're warning you of it. They're, they're guiding the, the path of where it will come. People are boarding up and ready. And some people evacuate and some people stay. And I used to live through those decisions as a kid. That's what I was, I was raised in Virginia Beach in that environment. And whole homes would be destroyed. Especially on the outer banks of North Carolina, homes on stilts, people would build their house on the sand and they would just go like unmoored ships out to sea suddenly, you know, million, multi-million dollar homes out to the sea. There was one special that I saw on the Weather Channel. It was highlighting how people end up convincing themselves to stay in harm's way when a hurricane is coming, how they get there from here. The Red Cross is there. They're knocking on the door saying, get out. It's time to evacuate. The National Guard is called in. They're putting sandbags down. They're trying to buttress for that. But really, they're just trying to get people out of there. And a lot of times people stubbornly won't leave. The storm is coming. They know what's going to happen. They've seen it before. They put plywood up and they try to ride it out. And there was this one scene, I'll never forget, where the, the Red Cross is banging on the door saying, it's time to go, time to go. There's one way out, one evacuation route where you can still get out. And they're, they're answering the door with beer in hand, drunk, saying, hey, welcome to the hurricane party. We're good. Well, that's what our world is doing in view of what Jesus is saying here. A storm is coming. It's calculated. It's going to happen. It's gathering, it's gaining momentum, and the path is our world. It will be cataclysmic. So where do you stand? Are you on good ground, on the rock, or are you on sandy ground, on the sand? Are you vulnerable, or are you safe and secure? So I was uh, raking my yard or doing some yard work this past week, like many of you, because it got sunny for a few days. It teased us, right? The Lord is like, it can be paradise here, you know? And so I'm in my backyard and I was sobered, probably thinking about this text. And I was looking at my house across my backyard, you know, a little bit of a distance there, perspective on my home. And I was remembering two and a half years ago, the 7.2 earthquake that hit. For those of you who are new to town, I'm sorry, but those things happen here. And, and it was pretty, pretty terrifying, at least for me. I'm real steady in, you know, tragic circumstances, not really. And so my wife and I are rock and rolling. A lot of kids were here with a wrestling tournament. Teachers were here up and running, doing their thing. They were having to be strong. And you're just kind of wondering through that minute, however long it went, whether or not your shelter is going to hold together. That was my thought. I, my thought was, do we need to get out and sort of go out through what feels like you're on rolling seas out of the house because it could fall in? I wasn't sure how much damage is this going to mean and am I safe? Is this thing going to stop? And I was crying out to God and praying, you know, pretty, pretty strong into the world prayers and, uh, and then it stopped. And I was glad that nobody, nobody died that I heard of from that. I heard nobody's really harmed. I saw cars in where the road had opened up in places in our state and that looked pretty dramatic. So I don't know, but 
it was pretty minimal in terms of what happened to people physically. I know people lost their homes, which is really dramatic and really awful. Cracked foundations that couldn't be restored. Pretty tough stuff. But then I was carried away in my mind thinking about what happened in 2010, where in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, a 7.0 earthquake happened. And their construction is such that they just lived in concrete homes with no rebar. And so when things rocked and rolled there, 150 to 300,000 people died, depending on how you measure it demographically, geographically, and the timing and all of that. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died in that earthquake because the homes melted on top of them. We say, well, we're... These Haitians, um, ill-prepared for something like that, should they have been more mobilized like we were? Could be a perspective to take, could be a posture to take in your own heart. In 1964, we had a 9.4 earthquake here where I think it was 115 uh, people died. And that was a dramatic um, earthquake. There are people who perhaps are even here who were there then. And it sounds horrific um, uh, you know, 10 or 13 more died down in California and Oregon from that same earthquake. Um, we were more fortified probably for this earthquake in our construction and building and, and all of that from the 64 to now, maybe some lessons learned. But what is our posture? Do we say we're better than the Haitians because they died and we did not die? Well, I say no. Um, we should think rationally or logically to say a, a stronger earthquake could have hit here that no matter how much we fortified ourselves, it could have been a 10.0 and we all could have been crushed and killed. But by the grace of God, we weren't an earthquake on a smaller scale that would not have interrupted the construction they had down in Haiti could have could have struck there and everybody could have lived. And so I think we have to be careful in how we understand any of these things. Was it perhaps that the Haitians don't worship the true God? Is that why they died and we didn't die? A lot of people think that way. There was a evangelist um, when 9-11 hit who basically said that the people who died in the Twin Towers died because of the judgment of God, because of the sin of homosexuality that was growing and increasing in our nation. That was an errant thing to say. We don't, we don't know the, the whys and wherefores of God, just like Job did not know why his family was struck dead in an instant, killed by, um, you know, cataclysmic marauders who, who destroyed them, took their lives, took, took his land, took, took population. The devil ultimately was behind that, but that was to prove out that nothing, 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 though everything was stripped from Job, nothing could destroy true saving faith. That was a motivation that Job didn't even know that God had for why that was happening. Even after he was restored, it was, you, you weren't there when I created it all. Put your hand over your mouth and just trust me. That's the message of Job. Nothing can destroy saving faith. So we don't, we don't know why 9-11 happened. There's evil in the world. We know that is a driving force, but we don't know God's ultimate purposes in these things. We don't know why tornadoes strike and people are killed. We don't know why people in Haiti died. I mean, they, they, were, they, they oftentimes are given to practicing voodoo. There is a syncretistic religion over there where Roman Catholic missionaries have gone there. There were West, um, West African slaves that were brought there in Haiti. And there's a syncret syncretism there where people worship God and spirits um, in ways. Is that why this happened? 
Is that why that happened? I, I think we have to be very, very careful not to be judgmental and say we are any better off than anybody else who is, who is a sinner in this world. Believer and unbeliever, we are not exempt from immediate tragic things happening to us. All of us are vulnerable on all levels all around the world. Whether you're you know, practicing you know, a false religion or you are a believing children's Sunday school teacher, feeling like you are safe and sound, we're all vulnerable to calamity and to tragic things happening in our world. I, my wife and I, when I first became a full-time pastor, we served in Little Rock, Arkansas as an associate pastor, and we showed up there. I was 26 years old, brand, brand new marriage. Um, I, hey, wife, we're going to come here. Great place. Let's go to Little Rock. And within the first month, 20, it was an evening, an all-night event where 26 tornadoes touched down all around us, like we were under attack, being bombed by these things, wiping out whole neighborhoods. It was like a war zone the next day. That night we're sitting there in the floor, you know, on the floor in the, the hallway is a young couple with mattresses all around us. And I'm going, what have I done? You know, there's a World War II, you know, sort of sounding siren, the oh, going on outside. And Judy ultimately went, well, I'm just going to bed. I'm over this. And so she woke up the next day. I, you know, again, I'm good in a tragedy. No, um, but, you know, God, God does what he does. According to his will, um, years later, after I'd come here, there was a family we were close to in our church down there. It was a husband and wife of nine children, nine children. And uh, they had, you know, a tornado hit its tornado alley and it was destroying their home. And he was, he was seen shoving in all of his kids into their safe room, which is under their staircase and his wife in there, and he wasn't able to get in, and two of his kids in in time and shut the door, and he was ripped away. They were found dead in the rubble, and everybody else was safe and sound. So what do these tragedies teach us? What is God trying to show us when wild things happen in our world? Ultimately, these things should draw us to ask the question, what is the state and condition of my own heart? Am I in the safe room? on solid ground, a life built on the rock of the Lord Jesus and the gospel of grace, or am I trusting in something else that's sandy ground? I will call, you have rock-like faith, that's the gospel, and then you have sand-like nothing that is really a synonym for self-righteousness. Are you standing on the rock, which is grace, or are you standing on yourself, which is sand, the sand of self-righteousness? That's it. That's what, that's the dividing line that Jesus is making here as he closes off the Sermon on the Mount. Did you get the point of what I just said? That's what he's doing. Do you understand judgment is going to clear the decks here? And you'll either stand or fall in the judgment based on whether or not you understand are applying and living out this sermon. (laughs) Jesus is in essence dismantling self-righteousness, dismantling a sand-like instability. He's dismantling Phariseeism, legalism, religiosity. He's dismantling this control force that the Pharisees and scribes were putting on the people with the law, saying, oh, it's here. And as long as you stay under its rule, I mean my control, then you're good, you're safe. But if you go outside, then you are going to be judged. And Jesus is going, you've, you missed the point completely by 
committing adultery, yeah, you are violating the law. But if you're lusting, let's go down deeper. Let's go down deeper into the soul. If that's what's happening in your heart and you don't repent of that, you have no remorse over that, you have no living relationship with the Lord in that, you're vulnerable. You're outside of the safe zone. And then secondly, if you're murdering, yeah, you're out of God's will. You violate his law. What about if you're just a hateful person who won't repent of that, won't deal with that, won't give that to the Lord? Sins, um, sins of pride, sins of drunkenness, sins of carousing, sins of worldliness. Unrepentance is a telltale sign that you are not safe. What does it look like to put your, arm, put your uh, life in the arms of Jesus, who's like the Red Cross? What is it like to be carried away to safety? Well, it's coming to the place where you go, I'm, I'm undone. Jesus, you've put me in a hole. And instead of me trying to paw my way out, I go, I can't climb out of this hole of my own sinfulness. I need grace. I need the lifeline. I need your help. That's the posture. That's the position Jesus is putting someone into where they go, I need a savior. I need a lifeline. I need a rope to be thrown down and I need to be pulled out to rescue by the Lord Jesus alone. Not the sand of self-righteousness, but the rock of Jesus. So our text, it creates this dividing line. You will either listen to Jesus or you will not. You're either a hearer of the word and a doer, or you are not. You're either full Christian or you are not. So point one, let's go to everyone who listens. Everyone who listens, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. I love this word. The first word in my text of verse 24, everyone. Everyone. Jesus is calling everyone to come with him. Everyone. He's the rescuer. Come with me to safety. He's the Red Cross. He's the National Guard. Come to safety. And he wants to carry everyone there. He's opening the door wide in his mercy and everyone who is willing to build their foundation on the rock of the gospel of grace comes with him. What does this look like? It looks like hearing the whole sermon. Here, have you heard these words, verse 24, these words, the whole sermon. And are you someone who's been transformed by that, who does them? Not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, a doer of the word, a transformed like faith that works, faith that produces fruit. It's not enough to just hear things with your physical senses, to see things, to see church, to see what's going on, to understand what's happening, to hear sermons. That's not enough. Are you hearing and believing, believing that's doing? The doing doesn't save, but the doing shows that you're saved. You see the difference? But those things are happening. If you have living faith, it's alive. It's measurable. It's identifiable. You're going to see it in your life. You're going to see it in other people's lives. You don't just get people to church to get people under the hearing of the word. You want to pray while they're hearing the word and that they will believe. The truth is what sets people free. It's building on the rock. Jesus in this sermon has put people in a devastating a devastated position so that they will say, I need a savior. 
because I could not save myself. That's where we're going. What did, listen, let me just show you how Jesus applied this on a personal level. So this is the big sermon format, verses 24 through the end. Now, here's him. Here's Jesus talking to his disciples. So he gathers his disciples together and he wants to say, okay, I've been preaching on a broad scale. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you understand what's happening? And so Matthew 16, you could turn there, verse 13. He says, now when it says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of them are just going, what are you really asking? That's what they're saying. And Jesus narrows the focus here. But who do you say that I am? Here's Simon Peter, the spokesperson for the group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I think Peter was speaking for everybody there. But he's the one who's just saying it. I know with full boldness, I've chosen a side. You could side with the religious crowd. That's who we think you are. You are the Christ. What is he saying? You are Messiah. I need a savior. I need a savior. You're savior. You're the one Messiah meaning anointed. You're set apart to save. You're the son of man, which is Daniel 7. You're coming in the clouds one day. You're the savior. That's what Peter was saying. And Jesus knew that's what he was saying. And so he, he answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Just to say, you're that Simon. You are particularly blessed. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Uh, you're born again. You just manifested spiritual, identifiable, measurable fruit that you are truly saved because the spirit of God showed you this. Verse 18, and I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a lot of debate about what the rock is here, but I I like to take the rock in the same way as Jesus preached it here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The rock is the confession of the gospel. The rock is the confession. Uh, Peter is named Peter as a title Not because there's any power in Peter, but because the power of God had revealed the gospel to Peter. That's the gospel is the, what the church is built on. And what, what, what takes out the stinger of death? I mean, death hurts. We have loved ones even in our church who probably will soon die. What takes out the sting, the fear that the, the, horrific dynamic of death on this end of eternity is the knowledge, is the awareness that people are saved. The gates of hell, death is not the final um, end of the story. The gates of hell, meaning, meaning hell of, of the, it's really not the devil and the demons that are, that are being defeated here. It's um, the gates of death, the gates of Sheol shall not prevail against it. Death wears your sting. Jesus has conquered it. And so, you know, earlier Jesus had named um, Peter, the rock, he had given him this name in an earlier account where Andrew had uh, in, introduced Peter to Jesus. It says in John one forty two, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is an Aramaic means Aramaic title, which means Peter or the rock. So Simon was named by Jesus at introduction um, as a rock. 
He was going to be someone who would believe, who would carry the message of saving grace, the gospel message. We need a savior. We need Jesus. And this is the title given to Peter because he made that confession. Peter was listening to the word of God. Not even the gates of hell, not even death can prevail against what, Jesus, what Peter was believing in, which is the gospel. How, how rough does it look? What, what does God's wrath look like? Look at verse 25 back at Matthew 7. It says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat, literally pummeled on that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. The gospel. This is a, not a light rainstorm. This is a torrential rainfall. Rain can be very dangerous. We, you know, it was raining on the way back up Seward Highway and, you know, wipers were going. It can be dangerous, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a torrential rainfall. And if you're from certain areas in the lower 48, you've driven around in rainfall where you can't keep driving. As a kid, I remember growing up and my, my mom had a, a, you know, really raging sports car called a Ford Pinto. And, and um, man, had a stick, stick shift and the whole thing. And I'm like down in, down in the floorboards because she didn't wear seatbelts back then. And the rain would come and it was, it was too dangerous to drive. And there'd be times I remember where she would pull off under an overpass and we'd just stop for like an hour because you're not going to go farther because it's too dangerous. You're in a hydroplane. You can't see anything in front of you. That's the kind of rain that, that fills up water basins and overflows um, topography and foundations are made wobbly and they crack and, and they mess up. And that's what we're talking about here. Rain is coming. It's torrential rain and floods come and winds blow and beat against a house. Eventually, you know, the elements win is what Jesus says here. And that's what God's wrath is like. There's no way for you to be safe from God's judgment that is coming. Homes in Southern California, when I lived there and went to school, they'd be on, you know, just cliffside overlooking beach areas, multi-million dollar homes, but they were built on the sand. And then when the rains would come, everything backs up there. It doesn't drain very well. And so the, the streets become rivers and melt things away and melt foundations away where you see a house just slide down or where it's crashed down the front of a cliff. It's the same picture here. It's the same picture. The Outer Banks of North Carolina, I already mentioned that. Nor'easters come in, houses built on stilts. They're like unmoored ships that are being dragged away. They're not on a solid foundation. I had a colleague in Little Rock, Arkansas, who was a pastoral colleague, and um, he, he, he was very precise. He was an aeronautical engineer, had everything in order, everything was perfect, and suddenly he saw cracks in the sheetrock climbing up his walls. And that was a symptom of a greater problem. The foundation of his house had been compromised because the water was not draining off of his, his split-level foundation. And so he had, to, he had to carve out French drains so the water would go away from the house, but it was too late. And he had to hire in a company to sink piers underneath the foundation to prop it up and save the house. It's unbelievable to be unstable. You're going to be swept away if you don't have Christ. If your confession isn't built on the rock, if you look back just quickly in verse 24, you want to be like a wise man. That's not outsmarting things. That's being spiritually dialed in like Peter was. 
You want to be alive and say, Jesus, you're all I have. You're all I need. You're completely sufficient. You are my Messiah. And when you are converted, what happens is you are established. You're established. Verse 25 again, because it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's the word themelio, which means established. It's when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's when God himself has said, you're righteous. It's where you're going to stand in heaven before the Lord. And if you're vulnerable without Christ, you're going to absorb wrath, do wrath and, and judgment upon the sins that were not dealt with. And you'll be spending eternally, eternity in hell paying against that debt, that offense against eternal God for eternity. That's how much you owe. It's an unpayable amount. But if you are in Christ, you're not outside the shelter, you're in the shelter of Christ. Christ absorbed that wrath, that judgment on your behalf on the cross and you're safe and you're secure and you're alive with him for all of eternity. You're either on the sand of self-righteousness or on the grace of the rock, one or the other. Again, auditory learning, auditory listening is, um, can be damaging to you. It can be like ingesting small amounts of poison that ultimately make your spiritual soul septic. Hearing the truth over and over again without genuinely believing is actually dangerous. It's an it's a act of judgment. When Isaiah saw the Lord raised up in Isaiah 6, and ultimately God said, who will go for us? Who will give the gospel? Who will give the saving message so you can know this Lord? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then the preaching orders were not what you would typically want to hear as a preacher. This is what God said Isaiah's mission was going to be. He said, verse 9 of Isaiah 6, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And the goal of the preacher is always to bring someone to a crossroads so that they will believe, so that they will see, so that they will hear and believe. But oftentimes you're preaching to people who are resisting, resisting, resisting. They want to be half Christians, which really is no Christian at all. It's a, a damning effect, a hardening effect. James 1.22, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. Come out of that self-delusion. Truly believe. Don't be someone like James 2.19 who has demon faith. Even the demons Believe and shudder, but their version of believing is superficial. It's not real. It's not saving faith, a faith that works. Someone who hears and then builds his house on the sand is in serious trouble. A hearer, but then I'm, I'm on a sandy foundation. And you know those people. They're not safe. Sand is self-righteousness. It appears good on the outside. The house looks great on the beach. It's awesome. Then the hurricane comes. It's wiped out. Then it slides down the cliff to destruction. It's on silt. It's unstable. The one thing, um, big difference between a, I said this already, but an earthquake and a tornado and a hurricane is that you can see the hurricane coming and developing as it approaches, as it approaches. And we, we know that these times are turbulent. There are shootings that happen in schools. We don't wish those on anybody, any family ever. There's things that happen in churches where people are suddenly shot or things happen. It's terrible. But don't miss the point of tragedy. Tragedy, as terrible as it is here and now, is a warning of what's there and then, what's coming. 
Are you safe? Are you in Christ? Are you outside of Christ? You don't want a dangerous brand of misguided, convoluted self-righteousness to be what you're really standing on when you need the rock of Jesus. And I want to just dive into a cross-reference text that gets into a couple scenarios that Jesus addressed. In Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, there was a group that was trying to trip Jesus up for him to side politically against Pilate or against the Galileans, to, to trap Jesus into being judgmental, to disqualify all of this love and grace that he was offering here on earth. They wanted to neuter Jesus's message by getting him to compromise by um, taking a superficial position. In Luke 13, verse 1, it says there were some at that very time who told him, Jesus, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We have no historical record of this, but um, to be sure, these Galileans, they were zealots. They were, they were offensive politically. They were offering sacrifices in the temple. They weren't classic Jews, but they were sort of syncretized and, and defying the government a bit. And Pilate had had nothing for this. He had no time for this. And Pilate, you know what he did to Jesus. You know who he was. He basically just dropped a despotic bomb on um, these Galileans and wiped them out on site, bloodbath in the temple. Highly offensive to the Jews, by the way, because that's blasphemy to do something like that in God's temple. And so they're going to Jesus and they're saying, what do you do with something like this? Are those Galileans bad? Did they have that coming to them because they were defying governing authorities Where, and they were doing it in God's temple and wiped out? Was that a judgment from God on them? What do you think about Pilate? I mean, all those things were probably part of this conversation. How are you going to side? Verse two. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think they're worse? Jesus holds the mirror back up on the questioners, on the inquisitors. He takes a third position. I'm not siding with Pilate or the Galileans. Do you think you're worse than the Galileans? Do you think you're better off than what happened in Haiti? Do you think that you're um, exempt from um, the same kind of um, tragic scene that happens at a tsunami or where there's some cataclysmic event or a shooting? Do we think we are smarter, better, more prepared and safer than those people in this sin-cursed world? Is that where you're coming from? It's a facade that we build of self-protection. And watch how it works. You build a facade of self-protection by saying, I'm better than those people. You deflect. That's what the inquisitors were doing with Christ. They're, they're def- hey, let's talk about the Galileans and what happened to them. Why'd that happen to them, Jesus? That's a deflection where you don't want to deal with God in your own soul. You just deflect by judging others. That's a trap that people fall into in our country and say we're better off than everybody else because we're better than them. It's a facade of self-control. Jesus takes them completely off guard and creates a caution by saying, don't judge them. You need to judge yourself. Look at verse 4. Jesus flips the script and, and, well, verse 3, he says, no, I tell you, unless... But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You think that was horrible that happened, what happened to them in that temple? What about God's judgment? They were not expecting to have to examine themselves. God is a no respecter of persons. God, at least in terms of tragedy here on earth, 
That scene where there was a bloodbath was, had the appearance of being unjust. It was without warning. It was a gruesome, cold-blooded, murdering event. It was instantaneous, but it also is what judgment will look like in the future. It'll be instantaneous. Um, to the outside onlooker, it'll be unjust looking. Why is God doing that to them and not to them? But the warning is now. The warning is now. Look at verse 4. This is the second scenario. Jesus now brings this one up. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, this is a unpredictable, what, what insurance adjusters call an act of God moment, right? The Tower of Siloam falls on people. Or there are people in the tower, 18 of them die instantaneously. Why? Perhaps an earthquake. Not sure. There's no malicious event behind that event. No, no um, explosives were set. A tower just falls and people die. What about them? Are we going to judge them? Are you going to take that posture of judgment with them? The, the, the Siloam area is 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was an aqueduct system, perhaps put in there by um, Rome, but it was guarded by towers. And um, that aqueduct system had towers and suddenly an, a, something hit, maybe an earthquake or whatever. The tower falls and people die. What about them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I mean, the, the inquisitors wanted to isolate it around these Galileans and these in particular that must have been really bad sinners. We're way better than them. And Jesus says, well, what about those who just died just suddenly as an act of God? What about them? Do you think you're better than them? Do you think anybody in Jerusalem is better or worse than those people? So he's, again, opening the door for people to have to dig deeper and think in terms of the state of their own soul. What was wrong with those people? It was quick and it was sudden. Judgment will be quick and sudden like that. That's the point. It's not, why did this happen to them as much as what is the state of their souls now? That's the question. Because judgment is quick, it's sudden, and it's infinitely worse. And it's, it's forever God is indiscriminate in terms of these kinds of actions in our world that we live in today. But the point is to look deeper inside and to look beyond and wider in terms of eternity. 9-11 happens, the dams and locks broke in New Orleans, tsunamis hit, mopping millions off a coastland, Japan and Thailand, physical death happens, people get cancer, things happen, people die but we need to think in terms of the state of our own soul. Are we with Peter making a, you are the Christ confession? I can't save myself. I need a savior confession. It's the only saving grace. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't fear physical death, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. I want to, kind of turn you to one final story that just summarizes all of this. It just puts it in real life. It's John chapter nine. This is about a young man who is in Siloam. So right where the tower fell, this is where this man is. And if you're just reading through the storyline, I would recommend you do so. John nine is super interesting. It's about a man who was born blind. He's born blind from birth and Jesus and his disciples are walking by and the disciples are saying, why is he blind? Again, they're, they're, Falling into sand-like self-righteousness. They're on sandy ground with these kinds of questions. Why is he blind? 
What sin did he commit? What sin did his parents commit? Deflect, deflect, deflect. Let's talk about him. Why is he that way? What's going on? And Jesus flips the script and says, he's born blind to give glory to God. That's why. And I'll show you how this is all going to work. And so then he puts mud on the man's eyes and, and says, wash in the pool of Siloam right there. And suddenly the blind man sees. And it's an amazing miracle. Nothing like this has happened. This is, this is a Messiah moment. This is a Jesus moment. And so the man is reported as um, seeing everybody in the town and grown up around this man. And so suddenly the Pharisees, who are the power players in town, trying to exercise law and control on people, they're trying to guard their own situation of self-righteousness. They want to guard their own sa- sandy ground foundation. So they drag this guy in for questioning. Who healed you? What happened? They're not trying to look to Messiah and say, wow, this is an amazing miracle. They're saying, who's behind this? We want to shut this down. We want to protect our power and control. That's what this is all about. And so, you know, the man um, deflects and talks about Jesus and, and, and he really doesn't know who healed him. And so then they drag the parents in to verify, hey, is this your son? Did this really happen? Is this the one who was blind and now sees? Yes, this is our son. It's amazing. But it says in the text, and I'll read it to you, that ultimately the parents deflect. They don't, they don't want Jesus either. They're not siding with Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes aren't siding with Jesus. They're choosing themselves, not Jesus. And so the parents throw the, the kid under the bus. He's of age. He's old enough. Drag him into court. We don't want to lose our position in the synagogue. Question him, not us. It's real loving parenting here, right? It's unbelievable. Look down at uh, verse 21. It says, but now he sees and we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. This is the parents speaking, the parents answering. We know this is our son. He was born blind. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. It's himself. The parents, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. I'm reading this right now in view of, the kind of questioning that we might come under as Christians. Do I have your attention? This is the kind of side with Jesus or not side with Jesus moment that we'll be brought into. And these parents failed. They failed. And they put their kid at risk. Throw him out of the synagogue, not us. We don't want to lose our nonprofit 501c3 status. We don't want to lose our salary. We don't want to lose our position. We don't want to lose our power. We don't lose our comfort. Question him. They should have gone... Praise God, take us all now. Jesus is real. My son can see. I mean, how hardened do you have to be? How deaf, how blind do you have to be? These parents are horrible. It's just bad. Therefore, the parents said, he's, a, he's of age. Ask him, verse 23. For, so for the second time, they called the man who'd been born blind, um, who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. All right, two things here. This is sermon number two. Just strap in a second. Joshua chapter seven. You have the battle at Ai. You have Achan. He stole stuff he wasn't supposed to in promised land time. He's commingling with the enemy. His, he's got the loot under the tent. You know, his family's all involved in it. And the confrontation that Josh, the language Joshua uses when he confronts Achan in front of everybody is give glory to God. Now that was a righteous confrontation here. These are the religious Pharisees satanically mimicking and mocking what Joshua said by confronting this true, um, this, this 
son who, who was blind now sees and says, give glory to God and throw Jesus under the bus. Give glory to God. Jesus is a sinner. How blasphemous. That's what's going on here. Give glory to God. He answered, and I love this. This young man was a millennial. I would bet on it. Listen to his sarcasm. It's unbelievable. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. That's where the amazing grace line comes from. Verse 26, and they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. They didn't have ears to hear. They wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Hey, do you want to join? You want to join? Is that, is that why I'm still in court here? Is that why I'm still under trial? Because you want to join up? Is that why you keep asking me? I'll tell you all about this guy. This, this man changed my My direction, I can now see. And they reviled him, verse 28, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We're consumers. We're not worshipers. We're siding this way. You're siding that way. That's obvious. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Moses standing for the law and their power, but this man, we do not know where he comes from. And Moses answered why this is an amazing, or this man, the man answered why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. This is like Jesus confronting Nicodemus about being born again. You don't understand this. You understand the law. You understand that the Messiah was coming and you don't get what's going on. Verse 31, now he starts preaching. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper, this is the category of true believer, a worshiper of God and does his will, a doer of the word of God, he's got genuine faith, God listens to him. Now, since the world began, it has been, it has been heard that anyone open, well, hang on, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. This is the epitome of hubris and pride here. This is their response. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach and, and would you teach us? Are you going to preach it us? That's what these Pharisees were saying. You're born a sinner. What are you doing? And they cast him out. So the young man is outside of religion. He's outside of synagogue. He's outside of protection. He's, he's been cut off from social security. He's out, he's out, he's out. Where does, who does he find when he's on the outside? He finds Jesus. And Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see, meaning see superficially, may become blind. They become more hardened. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? They're just getting harder and harder in their hearts as they hear Jesus. They're hearing things and it's poisoning them making them septic. Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you were disarmed, if you realized that you were in need of help, I need someone to guide me. If you were blind, you'd be saved. You'd have no guilt. But now that you see, the more you're hearing the word of God and rejecting it, now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You're stuck. 
It's one or the other. It's the stark contrast. And just turning back quickly to the last two verses of the sermon in Matthew 7. Again, it's wise versus foolish. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat against the house. They pummeled the house and it fell and great was the fall. And it says in verse 28, and when Jesus finished these things, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, the bifurcation is there between believers and unbelievers. Um, not everyone who was astonished was a believer, though. You can be astonished with Jesus and reject Jesus. You can be wowed at the teaching of Jesus and not be a genuine believer. You've got to be clear on that. But at least they're on the right road saying what Jesus is saying matters. What Jesus is saying has gravity. What Jesus is saying is real. What Jesus is saying is addressing my heart. What the scribes are doing is superficial. What the scribes are doing is wrong. What the scribes are doing are power control plays versus the real um, message and saving message of Jesus. Was this crowd, were they hearers? Well, time would tell. Time will tell for all of us in eternity, right? One day we'll stand before the Lord when the 7.2 earthquake was hitting and I was rocking and rolling in my kitchen like some of you were. You're wondering if the house is going to stand or fall and the house stood and I'm thankful. In the day of judgment, when we are standing before God, your house is going to stand or it will fall. One or the other. And it's time to make preparations for that moment right now. Right now. Let's bow our heads. Today is the day of salvation. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you side with Jesus or will you side with self? Will you stand on the rock or will you stand in sand? Stand on the rock of Christ. Listen to the words of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields the fruit in its seasons, season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish.